0: Well, hi, everyone. I'd like you to welcome to my uh, next podcast episode. And today we have a treat for you. Uh, We have as our guest, General Greg Martin, who uh, is joining us uh, from his home in Florida. Uh, Greg was uh, a um, general in the Army uh, and recently uh, published his memoir called Bipolar General, My Forever War with Mental Illness. And um, I highly recommend this book to you. We'll be talking about it plenty today. Uh, so I'll start with it. I'll end with it. Let me just emphasize to you how, how great of a, of a memoir it is. Um, just published this year, 2023, by Naval Institute Press. And um, it's a very readable, about 200 pages. Tells his life story. Tells his story of how he was diagnosed with bipolar illness Uh, suffered from it, benefited from it, got treated for it, is doing well for it and has come out on the other side in a way to um, explain his experience to people, um, not just people in general, but also especially people in the military um, to kind of take into account his experiences as as we try to figure out how we should diagnose and treat this condition in general and more specifically in the military setting. So, Greg General Martin, it's, it's an honor to have you with us today.
1: Thank you, uh, Professor. I really appreciate it. It's really an honor to be on. So, thank you.
0: Thanks. I'll call you, Greg. You call me this year, and we'll we'll go we'll go from there. Uh, that sounds good. Why don't we start for our audience who uh, may not know about your book or your background? Just to start with, giving them initially just a little brief biographical background about who you are. Uh, your life sketch, and then we'll get into your experiences specifically that you describe in Bipolar General. Sure. Uh, So Greg Martin,
1: uh, born in Brockton, Massachusetts, just down the road. And then I grew up in Holbrook, uh, about 15 miles south of uh, Boston, Uh, was was really kind of an all-star athlete, honor roll student, and a leader all through high school. And then I went to the University of Maine for one year, which was good. It gave me a you know exposure to college level academics and then was accepted and went to West Point, the U.S. Military Academy, uh, part of the Army, and uh, graduated there after a really successful few years, went to Army Ranger School at Fort Benning, Georgia, and then on as a lieutenant over to Germany uh, during the Cold War. So stationed in Darmstadt, Germany, and we had a great Cold War mission uh, where we were on the West German side and the Soviet Warsaw Pact armies were on the other side of the border. And we did my units did all the standard combat engineer tasks, building obstacles, um, building fighting positions for you know U.S. tanks, infantry, artillery. Um, so it was an exciting time. And I got to travel all around Europe. Uh, had a lot of fun while we worked hard doing army things. Met my wife, Maggie Ryan, over in Germany when I was a lieutenant. Uh, we got married. Uh, then I went on and became a company commander in charge of, you know, it was 30 when I was a platoon leader and then about 180 soldiers. Uh, then the army gave me the opportunity to go to graduate school. And they sent me to MIT and said, Greg, we, your mission is to get one degree in engineering. And during the experience, I ended up with two master's degrees and then finished a little bit later a PhD and did the Army Command and Staff College by correspondence. And I didn't think any of anything of it at the time because I just enjoyed it so much and had so much fun. My brain was working really well. But now looking back, I could see that I was clearly living on the bipolar spectrum with a bipolar brain. Uh, from there, I went. I was a uh Two tours at West Point uh, on the staff and faculty. Uh, Fort Lewis, Washington, did a deployment to Honduras in Central America for a year. Um, let's say got picked for all the different Army military schools, including the Naval War College, the Army War College. Um, then was a battalion commander at Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri, in charge of about 500 troops. Uh, that was a real highlight of my career. I loved it. And then um, went to the Army War College, studied strategy and um, national security affairs, and then went to, uh, to Germany. Uh, and I was a brigade commander in charge of thousands of troops. And we deployed to Kuwait for then for the attack into Iraq and then you know the taking down of the Saddam Hussein regime. Um, and that was actually, according to the VA and the Army Medical Department, it was the experience in Iraq, the intense stress, pressure, thrill, euphoria um, of that experience that triggered my genetic predisposition for bipolar disorder. And So both the VA and the Army came to that conclusion. And then over the next 12 years, my bipolar disorder was unknown, undiagnosed, untreated, uh, nobody knew that I had anything you know, wrong wrong with me, especially me. I I felt great most of the time because I was manic. Um, but 12 years into this, uh, 2014, I was president of the National Defense University, which is about my seventh job as a general officer. Um, I had gone from commander of the Portland, uh, Portland, Oregon of the Corps of Engineers District, commandant of the Army Engineer School, commander of Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri, Commandant of the Army War College and then president of National Defense University in Washington. And at that point, I went into full-blown mania in 2014. And I was over the top, out of control, extreme grandiosity, religiosity, et cetera, all the symptoms of really extreme mania. At that point, um, people started finally saying, "Okay, there's something wrong with General Martin. And, they, and so they, what they did is they wrote anonymous letters to my boss, who was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and he made the decision after sort of doing an investigation and an assessment, said, OK, I've got to pull Greg out of National Defense University, and both for the good of him and his family and for the school. So essentially, I was called to his office and he told me, he said, hey, you've done a great job. I love you like a brother. I give you a grade of A plus, but. Your time at NDU is over. You have till 5 p.m. today to resign or I will fire you. And I'm ordering you to get a psychiatric evaluation this week at Walter Reed. So you might have thought I would be disappointed, but I wasn't. I said, thank you, General. I appreciate it because God put me here to do great things. and Now he's going to put me somewhere else to do even bigger things. And paradoxically, I think nine years later, I actually, with my new bipolar mission, am doing bigger things now than I did in the Army. But from there, I um, I spiraled into really severe depression, was finally diagnosed properly. I went to the doctor and said, hey, I'm really, really sick because uh, the depression was just crippling and demoralizing. And so at that point, four months after I was fired, uh, I was basically diagnosed at bipolar disorder type 1 with psychosis. And from there, I went from bad to worse and went into what I call two years of bipolar hell, Um, just hopeless, crippling depression, terrifying psychosis. That went on for a couple of years. Uh, Meantime, I was hospitalized at the VA in White River Junction, Vermont, and I give them great credit. I think they did a good job. The hospitalization was good for me. They identified that I had passive suicidal ideations, which they were very concerned about. And then ultimately, they prescribed lithium. And with, within, I'd say, three or four days, my symptoms vanished. They just went away. And, uh, and so I started feeling like my old self again. Um, you know, a lot of energy, hyperthymic personality came back. And I began the journey that I'm still on today, um, seven plus years into a journey of recovery and moved to Florida. And so uh, I learned a lot, wrote a book, and
0: here I am. Excellent, excellent. Thank you, Greg, for the brief summary that gives a background. Um, let me um, let me highlight for, for the audience. How old were you uh, when when you went to Iraq as the brigade commander? And what year was that again?
1: It was two thousand and three, mm-hmm.
0: and I was forty seven years old. Forty seven years old. Okay. And how long were you were you there in Iraq? A year. Okay. And then, uh, in that was 2003, you were 47 and that's when the, you said that the doctors later said that the stress might've started making you more symptomatic. Uh, you were 47 years old. And then 12 years later is when you had your manic episode, your first one ever, a full blown manic episode. So you were 59 at that point. I, I think I was 58. 58. Okay. So the audience uh, who's listening to us, those of of the audience who are clinicians will know, and I'm sure you heard a lot, the question mark, because the onset of mania, the age of onset on average is 19. Mm -hmm. Most people start having it in their late teens, early 20s, mid-20s, and it's typically uncommon from your 30s onward. So for you, maybe the symptoms started getting worse in your 40s, but really came on in your late 50s. And um, that. Confused your doctors a bit, I guess, right? Yes. What did they say about it, or how did that kind of where did that take things with you when you when they were trying to diagnose you in 2014?
1: Um, so I went in uh, three three times in July of 2014 and was you know evaluated and examined. In all three times, the doctor said um,
0: fit for duty, perfectly healthy, nothing wrong. And that's when you were manic. That's before you got depressed. Yes. And I know you've written about this, Greg, in terms of like um, the, the disadvantages of getting a VIP um, experience in, in the medical world. Speak to our audience a little bit about that and how you think that played out for you in terms of them having difficulty diagnosing you.
1: So I think the doctors were, they didn't want to hurt me. Um, all they could see was the success that I represented, you know, being a general you know, doing really well in combat in Iraq, having a doctorate from MIT. So when they looked at me, they couldn't see through or past the mask of success. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I was in front of them and they had no idea that I had a really sick brain and was very, very ill uh, because of all my success. Um, they also, I th- they were probably a little bit intimidated because of my rank. And, um, and, and like I said, they didn't want to hurt me administratively within the Army system, where giving me a diagnosis of serious mental illness could have really had negative effect on me with a medical re- review board and all that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, when I then later, four months later, after I spiraled and crashed into depression, and they did diagnose me properly in November of 2014, then the VIP medicine came in again. And what it how it manifested was um, there were two choices the doctors had. Choice one was just treat me the way they would have treated any other soldier, which probably would have been fairly aggressive. Um, you know possible hospitalization, possible lithium, different, you know something strong that could have made a difference with the bipolar illness. Um, But they knew from their experience that if they did that, it would send up a red star cluster to to the people that run the hospital. And then it would have triggered a medical review board, which is a lengthy bureaucratic process that could have taken many months, if not years to resolve itself. And they were worried that if they did that, I could be held in the army longer in a really stressful, miserable condition and so they wanted to get me to my retirement date so I could then get out the door, out of the military system and then deal with deal with it more, you know, more aggressively. Mm-hmm. So they they actually let me make the decision. And um, and so I said, OK, you know, which one do you recommend? And they said, well, let us treat you lightly and get you out the door at retirement because the stress of a medical board could really make you a lot worse. And so that was really another example of VIP medicine. By contrast, uh, after I had been out of the Army for a while and I went to the VA, um, then the VA very quickly identified that I had passive suicidal ideations, which they were very concerned about. They hospitalized me. I spent two weeks in an inpatient ward and then four more weeks living in a dorm room inside the hospital, doing intensive therapy every single day. So six weeks in in the hospital. And then, you know, just several months later, after my wife raised her concern that I was really not getting better, they prescribed lithium, which really turned everything around. And so I compare how the army doctors treated me, you know, kind of timidly, kid gloves. I didn't, I just kept getting worse. And then I compare how the VA treated me aggressively, and I, I I turned around and started getting better, so that's kind of my two experiences.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because it kind of it implies that you might a person might get better care if they're just an average person as opposed to some kind of VIP uh, patient. And and um, you would think it's the reverse, but actually it's that's my experience too, um, because people cut corners they, and and sometimes the the that's that's a problem. Um, but when they treated me with kid gloves, like what did they do? What did they what did they give you? Did they give you anything for medication or treatment? I got the Army? I probably got uh
1: nine or ten different medications. Um yes. all the ones that end with INE,
0: P I N E. I So I, antipsychotics. I antipsychotics and antidepressants too. Yes. Okay. So um a couple points to to think about here. The First is when you were manic, you were you were removed from command. And we'll talk more about in a minute about what your symptoms were, just to make it clear to the audience. These are very severe symptoms. <laughs> when General Martin Dempsey, who was your mentor and chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, removed you from your position as, as president of the National Defense University, as you described, four months later, four months continuing for the next four months, you were seen three times and they said you were fit for duty even though you had just been removed from your position by the general who didn't think you were fit for duty but the psychiatrists three times over those couple months when you were manic thought you were fit for duty as and again just emphasize you had just been taken off your position because of severe symptoms a couple months earlier what do you make of the fact that the psychiatrists um did that thought you were fit for duty even though your mentor who's a general and not a psychiatrist clearly saw you were not fit for duty.
1: Well, the doctors were, you know, obviously completely wrong. I mean, yeah. they were just they, they got it they got it dead wrong. Well, yeah. what it what it made me think about as I wrote the book and as I've learned more about psychiatry and and my condition is they didn't do much research or investigation because I I I can't um, imagine that they saw this, the same reports, the anonymous reports about how out of control I was. They couldn't have seen those because if they had, we would have discussed those. And so I don't think they went out and got um, much, or if any, collateral information, either from General Dempsey. Um, they did um, invite my wife to come once. Mm-hmm. And she th- said, I think he's manic. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so, she and diagnosed said, well, you. <laughs> yeah, so she, she had me, she had me diagnosed correctly, but they, it didn't make an effect on them. Um, I actually even went, uh, they, they had different psychiatrists look at me in the chief of psychiatry. He said that general Martin is the most emotionally stable flag officer I've ever seen in my, in my career. And, and so I, I don't know. Um, you know, the thing that people don't realize is, well, your audience will. But when you're manic, it doesn't mean you're jumping around all the time. I mean, right. you have plenty of periods where you're on an even keel, can have a normal conversation. Mm-hmm. And so I think that, you know, the the normalcy of these
0: conversations uh, led them to think that I was fine. Right. You can hold it together for half an hour or something for a meeting. R- Right. So uh, let's tell the audience a little bit what you have in Bipolar General about exactly how you were behaving before General um, Dempsey removed you as president of the the National Defense University. What kinds of behaviors were you showing that led him to do that? So uh, incredible levels of energy um, Mm -hmm. where I was just
1: on the go, constantly went a few months without any sleep. Um, And so, you know, then that fueled my mania worse. Um, Grandiosity. I thought I was the smartest person in the world, thought I held the key to world peace. I developed an idea called the Global Security University, which would be a network of networks all around the globe that would enable people to solve uh, security issues before they became a big issue or a crisis and thus keep world peace. I was preaching that concept constantly all the time to everybody I encountered from you know congressmen to four-star generals to university presidents, biz, heads of business. Um, I was recruiting students in the workforce all, all before this thing was ever solid or even became real. But I, I so believed in it. Um, I, I told my boss I would retire from the army and run it off of my retired pay um, if they didn't hire me to do it. Um, I almost bought very expensive multimillion dollar real estate in washington d c to house the campus of the university. I mean, I came an inch from, you know, buying that property, and that would have you know put us under financially because I mean there's we didn't have that kind of money. but at the last second it fell through and I didn't sign the papers, um, which was you know a real miracle. Um, i I uh in terms of religiosity, I was probably doing, about 30 significant religious events per week across four different churches in Washington, D.C. And, you know, it was just so intense that, you know, I thought I was an apostle appointed by God to come to the Department of Defense and to transform it. You know, the way that the Apostle Paul was kind of the founder and and creator and transformer of of modern Christianity, I saw myself because I thought God had, had chosen me. Um, I saw uh, the Holy Spirit descend multiple times in front of me, which was, you know, pretty cool. Um, I saw little packs of demons flying through the air, attacking our house in Washington. And I repelled them by putting Bibles and crosses and holy water in the windows and doors. And then I saw them fly at the house and then turn around and fly away when they were repelled by these, you know, these holy items. Um I, I talked forever. I mean, I would talk sometimes for hours. One friend said I once talked for eight hours straight. Another person said that I interviewed him for a dean position, and I talked for four hours straight and never asked him a question. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and so I, I forgot things. I would forget events and meetings, both you know, in my job and with the family. I would just forget them, and I would be going 100 miles an hour doing – something else um as the president of the university i would roam around the campus and i would go into classrooms and lecture halls and just take over I, I would just you know get up on the stage or in front of the class and invariably i would be talking about global security university you know preaching it inviting them to join to apply to be a student to teach on the faculty um let's see what what else did i have uh ideas constantly new ideas continuously so we would barely have time to you know get one idea you know get, get a grip on it and start moving out on it. and i'd have you know five more ideas that would come into my mind um i would go when i couldn't sleep at night um i would go on my blackberry or computer and i would send hundreds of email messages you know for hours at night and i would cc dozens upon dozens of people, most of whom had nothing to do with the university. I mean, they had nothing to do with it, but I would, I would CC them. And and I had this huge list of people that I would put on all the notes because I was trying to build this network of networks um, in my mind, including everybody. So they knew what I was thinking was a really key part of of doing the global security university. Um, But I would send these emails. And then when I would finish, I still couldn't sleep. So I would, go outside and I would power walk around Washington or I'd go to the gym, the 24 hour gym and lift weights, or I would get on my bicycle and ride as fast as I could all around Washington, DC. And my favorite part was I'd go up to the top of Capitol Hill where the the Congress is and I'd speed down the, the hill as fast as I could. And I would hallucinate that I would lift up and be flying through the air over Washington and I I was on my bike, but I could look down and see myself pedaling on the ground, and yeah. so that was that was kind of a thrill. That was part of the the mania, the hallucinations. Um, oh gosh, I I could I could go
0: on. Uh, yeah. No, that, that's that that's a lot, and I and I know you described it in the book. And and then did General Mar- uh, Dempsey hear about it and get complaints, and then decide to to ask you to resign? Yes. Yeah complaints from people eventually. Right. Okay.
1: And and he was he was very fair to me, mm-hmm. because he he treated me he said, Hey, I have to get you out of there. And I need to get you out of there for the good of the university as well as for you and your, your marriage. And he gave me the option to resign. He said, Hey, if you have till five o'clock today to resign, or I'll fire you. And if he had fired me, it would have been a totally different situation in mm-hmm. legally, administratively. I could have lost retirement pay, could have lost rank, but he didn't. He said, hey, you know, go ahead and resign. And 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 that would really was the end of it. Um, I didn't
0: get in any, any trouble or anything. So how are you interpreting these experiences when you're having it? Did you think of it as um, abnormal in some way or did you think it was just fine? I thought it was just fine. I thought I, I thought it was
1: God specially lifting me up and giving, you know, boosting and elevating my brain, my thinking, my body, you know, as far as no sleep. I, I just thought, OK, God, you know, God can do anything. I, so if, he, if I don't have to sleep, I can get more work done, which I did. I got all these emails that I would which were probably counterproductive. But mm-hmm. um, so, you know, the flying, it's just OK, God chose me. He's given me the ability to fly. You know, it's, a, it's like a miracle. And everything in my mind, it was, okay, it's good. You know, God's using me. Mm -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. And so as our audience will know so much of it, in a psychiatric um, lingo, we use the phrase lack of insight or not having insight into mania. About half the time when people have mania, they don't realize they're manic, which is kind of what you're describing. On the other hand, when they're depressed, they're very aware that they're depressed. They have insight into it. So you were going on manic like this for a while, months and months and months, and um, the doctors thought you were fine, but they didn't really diagnose you until you got depressed. Um, so tell us more about that, the shift into the depression and how they actually diagnosed you at that point.
1: So during my time with bipolar disorder, you know, after Iraq, moving forward three different times from 2004 to about 2010, I actually went to the doctor and said, Hey, there's something wrong with me. I feel terrible. I have no energy. I'm, I'm depressed. And, and I told them I'm normally really full of energy and enthusiasm and motivation. And three different times over a period of years, they said, you're fine. There's nothing wrong with you. So they couldn't connect the dots with, you know, bipolarity. Mm-hmm. And so after General Dempsey uh, fired me, or well, <laughs> forced me to retire, um, I then spiraled into depression really bad depression. It was the worst I had ever had in my life. but then it got worse afterwards. Um, and so I knew there was something wrong with me in November of 2014. I I just felt horrible. I couldn't make a decision, could couldn't decide you know what clothes to put on, could hardly get out of bed, completely withdrawn, um, you know confused, no energy. And so I went back to the same psychiatrist at Walter Reed and said, Doctor, now I, I, did, I have the opposite. I have you know really bad. I'm depressed, et cetera. Described the symptoms, and within you know really minutes, he could I, he could see you're really depressed. And then I think he was able to kind of connect some dots to the earlier uh, visits. And he also looked back at his notes and said, "Oh, your wife said that she thought you were manic." Mm-hmm. And he said, "Hmm, that sounds like manic depressive illness or bipolar disorder," mm-hmm. and and then he diagnosed me, and we had a good conversation about the mania, and so he was able to discern bipolar type one with psychosis, and mm-hmm. so finally, you know, four months later, they were able to cl- collect connect the dots. Mm-hmm. But I'm not criticizing him because I know it can take years and years to diagnose bipolar disorder properly. So I'm I'm grateful that I did get diagnosed and was able to you know move forward.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, if you think about it, if you if you start with 2004, and then your diagnosis eventually in 2014, it took about a decade for you, and that's about right. That's the average. It takes about 10 years for the average person to get diagnosed, and usually they see 3.3 psychiatrists before they get correctly diagnosed, and usually they're misdiagnosed as having unipolar depression, not bipolar. Um, in your case, they didn't diagnose anything. But the um the psychosis that you had, you had some delusions and hallucinations you described when you were manic. You also had some when you were depressed, right? Um, when you sunk into the depression. Can you describe some of those those symptoms too for the audience? Sure. The um the ones when I was depressed, um,
1: were there were two very distinct ones. Um, one was um that people were watching me, spying on me, and they wanted to get me fired from NDU, and get arrested, put in jail where I'd be murdered. And I believed that fervently that that's what was happening. And when when I when I got when all those anonymous complaints that got me fired, I said, "Aha, that's proof they mm-hmm. got me fired." And then the doctors said, "I'm perfectly fine. And there's nothing wrong with me." So that confirmed, locked in that I was right in my suspicions. So I had a delusion that went on or kind of a hallucination uh, that went on for a couple of years that 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 did in fact happen, that I did get convicted, put in jail. And there I was you know, savagely beaten in jail. And then I was stabbed to death um, in that I died face down on a cold concrete floor, gurgling in a pool of my own blood. And, you know, that went through my mind constantly. It was just a terrible vision of my own brutal, ugly death. Mm -hmm. The the other one that came up during depression was um, that, and this was after I had moved out of Washington, D.C. up to New Hampshire, was that this um, powerful, invisible force would stalk me and grab a hold of me. the, The most vivid one would grab me around the chest. And throw me underneath a rapidly moving eighteen-wheeler truck, and what would happen is uh, the truck would then rip my arms and legs and head off, and throw them these bloody stumps out to the side of the truck, and you know of course I'd be dead. Mm. Um, and that one went through my mind constantly. Uh, another one was that I'd be driving, and the the uh, the force would grab my hands, and steer me on into an oncoming truck. Um, and then there were a couple other ones where uh, people who were opposing me at National Defense University, they were opposing the transformation that myself and General Dempsey were trying to do um, that. Uh, I would see them and they would be you know, doing sort of the bureaucratic slow roll to try to resist all the changes we were trying to put in place. Mm. And a couple of them would their faces would morph into the face of like a rat or a snake. Mm. And, and that was pretty kind of terrifying Mm -hmm. and um, i feel fortunate i didn't like jump up and grab them or hit them with a chair throw them out the window Mm -hmm. and the and the other thing that i would have in some of these meetings with you know high level people at the university who really didn't want to change which is predictable in a in a you know a large complex government bureaucratic institution nobody wants to change Mm -hmm. and so there should be no surprise about this at all Mm -hmm. um but another one would happen is people would be, you know, resisting and arguing and slow rolling. And then I would suddenly, boom, I'd have a PTSD flashback to being back in Iraq with, you know, explosions and smoke and fire and dead bodies and stuff like that. And in in, in a couple of times I, uh, I would jump up and start to, you know, run in the conference room or the office, and I'd be like, go, go, like, you know, yelling orders at the troops Mm -hmm. to
0: move forward while we're Mm -hmm. under fire. And so yeah, that used to that happened a couple times too. So that's a lot of what psychiatrists uh, who specialize in suicide used to call death fantasies. They would say that, you know, you'd have these these fantasies about different ways of dying. And that was seen as a big risk factor for suicide. So that was definitely a concern that eventually got address with the lithium. But you have a chapter in your book, um, in Bipolar General, you have a chapter called Bipolar Hell, which I think is this two-year period after this depression where the army physicians were lightly treating you, like you said, uh, and not giving you lithium, you got nine antipsychotics and antidepressants during that time. Am I right? Yes. And is that the time you were having some of these these hallucinations and delusions about death and all that? Yes, yeah. so the, it, it, it got worse in a way, am I right, in those two years than it had been at the very beginning?
1: Yes, it did. It got significantly worse. And so the thoughts of death and dying, um, and, and I, I would they increase continuously. And then mm-hmm. the other thing that would happen is I, when we lived in New Hampshire, I would lie, I would lie back on the couch and I would just stare into space, ruminating about every mistake I had ever made. And then if I did get some energy, I would I would dive down onto a hardwood floor and bang my head on the floor and, you know, punch myself in the head and face. And I'd be yelling at God, like, God, how could you do this? You know, you've ruined my life. Mm-hmm. You know, I was your apostle. And now now look at me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and and so that was all part of the bipolar
0: hell, that two year period uh, that was just horrible. And you're on. Serotonin antidepressants, antipsychotics during this time. Did
1: uh, during during um, most of that time, I ended up getting treated by a civilian provider in New Hampshire, mm-hmm. and he put me on uh, Lamictal,
0: Latuda, and a uh, Wellbutrin. Okay, so an antidepressant, Lamictal, mood stabilizer, and Latuda, and antipsychotic. Okay, and. Um, So two years and, you know, one might argue that things were worse possibly because of the medications, at least some of them, the antidepressants might worsen um, suicidality in some people. And then when you finally got lithium in three or four days, it started getting better. Yes. So two years versus three or four days. Yes. That's pretty amazing. It, It was unbelievable. Like I was so, so
1: horribly depressed. I was just, you know, in terrible, terrible shape. I had never felt that awful in my entire life. And uh, so we started doing lithium. And, you know, three, four days later, the symptoms went away. Within a week, I felt I had energy, enthusiasm, drive. I started hiking in the mountains. I started swimming in the lake, um, riding my bike, Uh interested in things again you know c- having you know normal adult conversations with my wife um interested in books and movies and all sorts of things And it was just like a complete transformation going from death
0: to life mm-hmm. so and it's been seven years since then yes so it's stayed like that since then it's been stable it's been good
1: i, I would say it's it's been stable and climbing, getting better for for most of that in uh, seven years. I've had a couple, um, uh, I had a PTSD attack that lasted about a day. Uh, I had a, uh, uh, or the incident was probably maybe less than an hour, but the aftermath took about a day before I finally calmed down and settled down. I had a panic attack on an overseas vacation in Europe, where for a variety of reasons, I thought I got abandoned and I had a complete breakdown, meltdown. um, And that probably took two or three hours to play out. And then again, it probably took about two days before my system calmed down and I felt okay again and could have a normal conversation. Uh, And then I had a period where a very person really close to me um, sort of turned their guns on me and attacked me and said that I had damaged their family and their child. And, um, you know, psychologically during the time that I had hurt them because of my bipolar disorder and was demanding um, payment of money uh, Mm. to make up for the fact that I somehow hurt them. Mm. Um, And that really sent me into an anger, an angry rage that lasted. I'd say I was really full of anger and rage for about maybe a few days Mm. and then it kind of trailed off, but it, 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 it dissipated over a period of weeks, but I'm, I'm past it now. I mean, it's, it's no longer even in my mind at all. I mm-hmm. just, I don't think about the person. I don't, I don't think, think about the incident because there's no value.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I think uh, with uh, taking into account some ups and downs that are brief like that, um, well, our audience might appreciate just me pointing out, that um this is sort of a good example of where lithium is um you might as well call it a cure people don't like calling it a cure for some reason but i think it is when you you take it and you stay on it and you're stable for years compared to years of being horrible with all the other drugs um so i i i think there's something special about lithium and and it's very different than just certainly in antidepressants, in psychotics, but even in some of the other mood stabilizers like Lamictal, which you took, which did not help you enough, as you described. Um, so that's probably worth pointing out. But I think our audience probably would want to hear more about, they'll be interested in your experience in Iraq as a combat leader, and more specifically, not, you know, your experience there, but also you wrote in Bipolar General a lot about What wasn't diagnosed at the time, but looking back on it sounds like manic symptoms where you'd be so high energy where you'd be out all day in combat and then you'd come home and you'd be exercising late into the night and then you had Bible study and things like that. So tell the audience more about what you were like in combat in that year in Iraq and um, what your experiences were.
1: OK, um, so leading up to Iraq, uh, we were stationed in Germany and we trained relentlessly for you know month after month training, administration, medical preparation, logistics, maintenance of the equipment and so forth, uh, because we knew we were going to be the, you know, the lead element in attacking to Baghdad. And then we deployed to Kuwait. And all this stuff that I'm saying, you know, with a few words is incredibly difficult, complicated, time consuming, stressful work. And then when we deployed to Kuwait, um, you know, you're essentially in a combat environment there because, you know, the Iraqis could hit us with missiles. They did shoot a whole bunch of missiles at us. And we did months of training and preparation in Kuwait for the attack. Um, And during that time, I was high energy, um, nonstop, hardly needed any sleep. Um, felt great, could, could basically conceptualize and rapidly solve all kinds of complicated problems very quickly. But then when we attacked from Kuwait into Iraq, I literally could feel myself. It was almost as if I lifted up off the ground. I felt like Superman. I felt like this huge weight had been lifted off my shoulders. All that preparation was behind us. And now we were doing the mission that we had trained for and that the country wanted us to do. Um, So I was I felt, you know, fearless. I was all over the battlefield, you know, checking on the troops, checking on all the mission sites, making decisions on resource allocation. Um, And then we would, you know, try to anticipate, okay, what could go wrong? What could the enemy do that we're not planning for? And what steps can we take? Can we shift forces around now? it would neutralize a possible counterattack by the by the bad guys. And so every day was constantly like that. While we were under fire and, you know, making life and death decisions, um, it continued. And, you know, the engineers did all kinds of things. We opened up airfields. We built helipads. We built uh, a, almost a 100 kilometer uh, big gravel road through the desert that allowed tanks and artillery and the supply trucks to keep moving. Uh, we, we bridged a whole bunch of rivers and canals. Um, and so my energy level was unbelievable. My brain was operating like a computer where I could see and anticipate problems coming at us and then solve them in brief higher headquarters before anybody else knew there was even a problem out there. Uh, and that was like just a continuous uh, flow of events. Um, and you know that 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 was pretty much um, the attack to Baghdad. And then we settled into a completely different kind of war once Saddam Hussein was gone. It became a a counter-terrorism and a counter a, a counter-guerrilla war where the the Iraqi army was, you know, they were gone, but you had foreign fighters, you had Iranian militias, you had al-Qaeda. you had all these different groups that were against us. And um, and so the war then became you know the enemy was hiding among the population so they were doing ambushes you know launching rockets planting improvised explosive devices or IEDs in the roads, and so that became our mission then was to you know deal with that environment and the engineers had primary responsibility for clearing the the IEDs um, as well we were building base camps we were doing civic action projects with local Iraqi government and leaders. Um, and so, you know, that was kind of the nature of the war. And so at the beginning, when we were on a high-speed attack to Baghdad, you know, you just, you slept outside. You, you didn't have a building. You didn't have a base camp. You were just on the move. But once we, the regime fell, we lived in base camps. And so w- once we were in a base camp, there was all kinds of time when you weren't training or out on a mission to do other things. And so I took up running Like I I always love to run, but I was running like a crazy man up and down these huge piles of gravel, which it's really very challenging because as you're running up the steep incline of gravel, the gravel lets loose. And so for every step you take, you probably fall back at least a half a step. And so I would run for, you know, an hour on these gravel things. Then I'd go and lift weights and do tons of uh, pull-ups and push-ups. And then there were church services continuously as the chaplains were very powerful in, in, in a war zone. And a lot of the troops are looking for spiritual strength and faith to kind of keep their their hopes alive. And so I would go to as, as many of these services as I could. I would go to the Catholic one, the Episcopal one. I'd go to the, the white evangelical one, which was like a Christian rock concert. When I mean, they had bands up on the stage, I mean, it, it was unbelievable. Yeah. Singing songs, dancing around. But my favorite was the black gospel uh, services. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there'd be a handful of, of white guys and gals in there, but it, everybody was African-American and mm-hmm. they are the most uh, praiseful people singing and dancing and, you know, hugging each other. And it's really amazing. And so I would get high. I mean, I would really get high. And my mood would elevate way up from running the rock piles to doing all these pull-ups and push-ups to going to the church services. And then other nights I would do Bible studies. I'd do prayer breakfast. Um, you know, I
0: would do any religious thing that I could get into, I would do. And and the feedback you were getting for all this was positive. You're, you're just great, doing great. Uh, yes. The, I did get
1: less than positive feedback after I wrote the book, I well as I was writing it, I went back and I interviewed as many people as I could from the time I entered the Army in my 20s all the way to the you know till I was you know basically fired. Um, and I asked them I, I said, hey look, um, love serving with you. It was really great. I've been diagnosed with bipolar disorder and here are the symptoms of mania and the symptoms of depression did you ever see this or other troubling behavior in me when we were together? Mm-hmm. And it was interesting during the Iraq period, a, a number of them said, well, you were, you know, you were, you're were really good, great, effective, motivational commander. It was, it was, it was always fun and exciting and motivational to be around you. That was good. But we did think you went overboard on the running and you <laughs> went overboard on the church services and we did worry about you from time to time you'd come in high really high and elevated from from that those activities and then you'd disappear and we didn't know where you went well what was happening is i was cycling into depression oh. even in iraq that it would only maybe last 10 12 hours yeah. but i would i would withdraw into my office or my little um my little room where i had a cot and i would i'd, I'd cl- shut the door and I basically lie down and I was withdrawn, confused, un- indecisive, felt sick to my stomach. Um, it was it was really a horrible experience, but I always came out of it by the next morning.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But it, 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 it happened, you know, dozens of times.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and so they said that that worried them as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that's an interesting um, and somewhat subtle um, observation. Yeah. Um, in the, in the few minutes we have left, I think one of the things that we want to, another uh, maybe final clinical point we want to make for the audience is how you were having these mostly manic symptoms and maybe very brief depressive ones, like you described, uh, for the year you were in Iraq, for years after you left, for years before you went there in your 20s and 30s, too, when you were so productive in the other phases of your career, as you described. Um but the doctors didn't know what to make of that because these were constant symptoms. You know, we, they usually are trained to think about mania as lasting a few weeks, a few months, but being different than your baseline. And same thing with depression, but you were constantly, mostly manic, a little depressed most of your life. And then when you and I met and talked about it and talked about temp mood temperaments, like hyperthymia is the, the one that I've talked about through the most cyclothymia is another one that where people are up and down all the time. And, um, That might be the explanation for why your first manic episode happened in your late 50s um, or at least the first one that got diagnosed because you didn't have an episode before, but you had these manic symptoms most of your life going back earlier. And it was very productive and successful for you. So that's something I want to point out for the audience. I know you've been thinking about this a lot and talking to a lot of people about it. What would you anything you want to add to that or further describe about it? Yes. Uh,
1: I had never heard of hyperthymia until I read uh, Nasir's book, um, First Rate Madness. And when I, when I read, uh, you know, I read the, the, the uh, bipolar chapters on Winston Churchill and Ted Turner and William Tecumseh Sherman. And I said, okay, yep. You know, bipolar disorder. I understand that. But then I think it was the next chapter. It was Franklin Roosevelt and John F. Kennedy who were hyperthymic. And I I read it and I said, this is unbelievable there. That's how I am, or I was for, you know, decades of my life. And then I did all the the reading and the research I could on hyperthymia. And there's really not all that much out there. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I talked with Nasir and we we had our our first uh, talk about that. And I a hundred percent am certain that I have a hyperthymic personality and I had hyperthymia you know, that being a near continuous state of low level mania. Mm
0: -hmm. And it
1: essentially, it was a natural high that elevated and boosted my performance, probably from high school, you know, all the way through West Point, through the army, you know, through MIT, you know, all the way until 2003, when I had onset of, you know, quote unquote, real bipolar disorder. and then I think now after I started taking lithium, I think I'm back into my old hyperthymic personality in that state again. Cause I have, you know, I have a lot of energy and enthusiasm. I'm extroverted. I'm having fun. Um, and and so I no mania, but I'm I'm definitely high. Mm-hmm. And all my friends are like, you know, they think I'm the most energetic person they've ever met mm-hmm. and you know, fun to be around and all that kind of thing. Um so. You know, to me, having hyperthymia helped me enormously until it, it morphed into, you know, mania and bipolar disorder. And then it went too high mm-hmm. and then it came crashing down. and almost killed me. Right. Um, but I'm grateful to be back where
0: I was. Well, it's your baseline. And so that's where lithium took you, which is it's good that some people worry about lithium, you know, making people apathetic or so on. But it doesn't. It, it's, it just takes you to whatever your baseline is, which for you is hyperthymia which as long as you're on lithium is not going to become manic. Um, but that's the problem with it. It's, it's got all these benefits that you described. But when people have um, mood temperaments like hyperthymia or cyclothymia, they are at increased risk of eventually having a full-blown manic episode like you did, or a full-blown depression uh, like you also did. And usually later in life, it usually happens in their 50s and 60s. Um, so this is not actually that unusual. It's just that people haven't studied it much and haven't talked about it much. But um, to finish up then, um, you're retired now, and I know you've written and have been speaking to um, different lots of audiences, but it, especially wanting to reach out to the military audiences. And we know about PTSD in the military. People have paid a lot of attention to that. We know about stigma related to that. There's a lot less stigma in, in the culture in general around things like depression and anxiety, but bipolar illness still has a lot of stigma you're retired now. You're not active. But what would you? What do you think? Uh, have, what have you been thinking about where things should go in the military in terms of how it, how it handles psychiatric illness in general? Um, PTSD has obviously been the focus, but more specifically, bipolar illness and other things. How how should the military think about about it? How would it, how should it handle people like you? Or should it have handled people like you, uh, and should handle in the future? What thoughts have you had about that, or what, what ideas do you have that we might leave the audience with as we think about where how this applies in, in that setting?
1: Well, first off, um, the military, like our society, needs to chip away at the stigma, which is really based on ignorance. And so, how do you how do you do that? I think you start with an educational and training campaign where all of the service members um, and again, the, the civilian world, same lessons, but all the service members should be trained in at least the basic symptoms of the most common uh, mental illnesses. So, for example, uh, bipolar disorder, it's, it's composed of mania and depression. Well, what does that look like? What are some of the hallmarks of those two conditions? You know, because like for me, I was around thousands of people for years demonst- you know, exhibiting bipolar disorder behavior. But nobody knew what they were looking at because they were completely untrained. Um, so if you have that training, that's a good start. And then I think you need what they, the military calls a battle buddy system, which is really peer support. And so every single service member should have a, a, a battle buddy that you know that they can talk to each other openly, frankly, they keep an eye on each other for for um, you know to make sure they stay um, healthy and fit. And if the if the battle buddy looks at a friend and says, hmm, I'm, I'm seeing symptoms of bipolar disorder. And here's here's what I'm seeing," They should have, be schooled on how to how to have a conversation with the person and say, hey, look, I really care about you. I don't want to see you get really sick or in trouble. Um, how about we go see the mental health people uh, at the clinic? and you know i'll go with you and let's make, let's see if we can bring your spouse and family member other friends or colleagues and um and and so the conversation could go something like this look um you know i i'm not a doctor you know but if you do have a mental illness like like bipolar disorder and you don't do anything about it it's probably going to ruin your marriage your family your career probably lead possibly to addiction, maybe homelessness, maybe incarceration and death. So if you don't do anything, that's the path in front of you. But if you do do something and you get in there, first off, they may say you're fine or you you may have something that's not that serious. Um, but if you do have some kind of a serious mental health condition like bipolar illness, they can they can diagnose you and you can get treatment and you can, at the end of the day, live a happy, healthy, purposeful life. And so I think that's some of the training that really needs to happen in all ranks from privates to four-star generals. Um, the other big thing is they need to have, and the military's actually doing pretty good at this. They, um, they're they having forums and you know conferences and meetings and trainings talking about and helping to normalize mental health conditions, which I think is a good thing. The other thing is the military is pushing mental health resources much further down the chain of command to where the rubber meets the road than, than used to be the case. The other big thing they're doing, which is a step in the right direction, is if you go back to before 9-11 in these long, you know, difficult wars, um, the military didn't keep people who had PTSD. Now there's tens of thousands of people serving with PTSD and they're being treated. They didn't keep people with depression, with clinical depression. Now, you know, tens of thousands are serving and they take medication and they're, they're doing fine. As far as bipolar disorder goes, they have recently each case is taken individually um, with, with a mental illness and there's no cookie cutter solution And, and the military is evolving. So, for example, bipolar type two, <laughs> people with that condition are being retained on active duty. To continue to serve, retain their um, uh, security clearance and all that stuff, because bipolar disorder two is not seen as that dangerous because they're not going into you know full mania. Um, right now, bipolar disorder type one, um, they'll they're if you're treated and diagnosed, it will lead to a medical evaluation review board where they will look at you individually, but. I think pretty much everybody with bipolar one is separated medically from the service. And so like, if I had been, um, diag- well, if I had been put before a medical review board, I would have been medically retired, um, instead of just normally retired.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I think there's some, there's obviously some room for, for more thinking about how best to handle this. And, um, uh... The distinction between type one and type two is, is for instance, a questionable one in some ways, um, and kind of subtle, um, but it's interesting to think about it and see how this plays out. But uh, at least we're we're seeing the military doing things differently than it did uh, in general, well, as you say, compared to even just 20 years ago. Um, the book is Bipolar General by Greg Martin. You can find it online at Amazon, other places. Um, and. Um, before we go, Greg, is there anything else you want to say that you haven't said or any final thoughts you want to share with the audience that you haven't shared?
1: Uh, first off, thank you so much for um, you know doing this podcast with me. I really appreciate it. Uh, the book is really doing extremely well. Um, and pe- people who have looked at it in the professional medical community, psychiatrists, researchers, and so forth, um, have given me extremely positive feedback. Um, there's, there's at least one med school where they're using the book to teach about bipolar disorder and mental illness. Um, uh, and so the reception in the, in the, in the medical community has been really good. You know, I'm getting asked to do grand rounds and lectures and, and all keynote addresses and so forth. Um, the book also, it is, I just, I just got an email, I got two emails today. One is, uh, they got the final approval to translate the book into Portuguese, uh, because there's a lot of interest down in, in uh, Brazil, in, mm-hmm. in the book, in the story. And then the second email I got today was that um, there's interest in China. Um, there's a publisher in China that wants to uh, translate into Chinese. So, you know, it's it's really attracting
0: um, global interest. Yeah, as it should, bipolar general. And um, as I told you, and I think I sent the quote, Mike, my, uh, my quote for the book, um, among the things that I, I sent to you was, imagine if General William Sherman well, came back to life today and told you what it was like to be a bipolar general, we now have Greg Martin here, who's uh, alive and kicking and telling us what it was like. And um, I'll put the um, link to the book on our social media when I send out this podcast, if you go on Substack for the podcast, I'll put the link up there too. Um I hope the podcast has, has whetted your appetite. Um, the book is definitely worth getting Bipolar General to get more and and, and actually read for yourself um, in more detail the life experiences of General Greg Martin. Greg, thank you for joining me today. You're very
1: welcome. Really my, my privilege. Oh, one thing I forgot is I've got a, a pretty robust uh, website. It's BipolarGeneral.com.
0: Okay, good. That's a good one to point out. And I'll put that out to BipolarGeneral.com a good way to get access to the book as well. Okay. Thank you, Greg. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure.